0: and welcome to the very seldom published Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I believe the last Mobile Dev Memo Podcast had to do with Cambridge Analytica, so that should serve as some sort of indicator for how often I get around to recording podcasts. My guest today is David Bernard, who is a developer advocate at RevenueCat, where he helps developers build, analyze, and grow their subscription app businesses. David has more than a decade of experience making a living on the App Store as a non-programmer, With his company Contrast. His apps have seen millions of downloads, been selected as an App Store editor's choice, and mentioned by just about every app related site on the web, including TechCrunch, The Verge, and even The New York Times. I asked David to be on the podcast to discuss the issue of Apple's strict controls over the App Store ecosystem and whether those controls are justified or fair. This is one of my favorite topics and I've written about it extensively. My position has always been that Apple created one of the most fantastic marketplaces for content distribution to ever exist and developers should, at least in some small way, feel privileged to get to participate in it. I have also always pushed back on the idea that Apple's 30% fee qualifies it for monopoly status, but as you'll see in the podcast, David didn't indulge me in that particular point of semantic grandstanding. Thanks for listening. I hope you are staying safe, and please enjoy this conversation with David Bernard. Okay, so could I have introduced you um, prior to us talking uh, in the podcast, but maybe you could just give us uh, like a kind of um, uh, high-level overview of your your career thus far.
1: Sure. Um, so I founded my company, which was originally called AppCubby. Uh, and then due to a trademark dispute, uh, was later rebranded to Contrast in 2013, I believe. Um, so I, I've been building apps since um, pretty much literally the day the iPhone SDK was released in 2008. Um, my my legal entity was founded like two weeks later. And um, actually, interesting story, I, I intended to learn how to code and I spent most of April 2008 trying to learn how to code and, and got deep enough into it to realize it was gonna take a few years to you know, actually get good enough to ship a product I'd be proud of and hired a contractor. And so uh, a lot of people don't realize that I, I actually don't code, I never have. So 12 years in the app business and um, have only tweaked parameters in Xcode, never really written any code myself. Um, so, yeah, starting in 2008, I, I had a series of apps um, app, uh, Gas Cubby, Trip Cubby. Those are uh, like vehicle maintenance and, and trip logging apps. And um, eventually created uh, Launch in a Pro, which, which uh, did pretty well and, and got a lot of attention over the years. Uh, now working on Weather Up. Um, had a total fluke of an app called Mirror, which was just like a front facing camera. Um, I sold that one. Uh, in 2017, so I've I've sold three apps now, and um, had gosh like four or five million downloads, and um, you know done done pretty well as a solo company. I've never hired an employee, so it's all been contractors, partners, um, you know, friends. <laughs> it's just total random um, random assortment of people who've helped me helped me build the business over the years. But uh, but yeah, pretty much just a, a solo company
0: yeah I think, and I think that's that's um that actually brings a lot to the discussion in your background because uh it's it's um it's it's rare that you get to hear the kind of uh you know positional arguments from like uh, a, a, a successful indie developer right i mean you get if you if you just kind of if your worldview um on the mobile ecosystem was informed by Twitter. You, you'd, you you'd, you'd, you'd hear from a lot of people that are kind of like, like me who've worked for very large companies. And then you'd hear from a lot of like unsuccessful, like struggling kind of solopreneurs, but I, I thought it would be really great to bring a successful, like solopreneur on, because this is like the real voice, the genuine voice of the kind of indie developer, right? Like such, such that it does exist. Like you probably embody that more than anybody.
1: Um, yeah, Thanks. Appreciate inside. that. You know, what, one other thing that I think is unique to my position is that because I wasn't head down in code for 12 years, I spent a ton of time reading, thinking, talking to people about running my business. So I've kind of approached the App Store more as a entrepreneur and uh, marketing person than I have as a and a business analyst than I have as a uh, developer. And so I think that that, that kind of mindset and the, the freedom I've had over the years to dive deep into those things and not, you know, spend my days on stack overflow and buried in Xcode and worried about bugs and stuff like that. It just kind of gives me a very different perspective than your average, even your other successful indie developers who are, you know, solo coder um, developers. Um, so I've, you know, I've had, um, <laughs> had and, and then even just the way my business has run over the years, I've kind of ended up having product cycles that leave me with more free time to just browse the app store. Like, you know, the, you talked about how I kind of gained some notoriety over the last couple of years uh, for calling out subscription practices. The reason those happened is because I was twiddling my thumbs waiting for one of my development partners to finish a project we were working on. And when I have free time, I'm studying the market. So like, instead of writing the code, I'm sitting there looking at the top 10 apps. I'm digging into um, you know each of these different niches on the app store and trying to understand why these apps are being so successful. And so I saw these apps like in the weather category where I have a weather app and I was able to spend days and days like looking at all these different weather apps, trying to understand why they're successful. And I started seeing these subscription practices, these scams that are tricking people into subscriptions. And so, so, you know, again, my, my perspective just is so different um, because of, of, of how I've run my business and, and how I work versus I think a lot of people who, who don't have that kind of freedom to explore and learn and um, think about it from a different perspective.
0: Right. I mean, that's super valuable. It's actually kind of shocking how little, uh, people do that. You know, everyone's (laughs) always so kind of tunnel visioned into their own product. Um, and that even at big companies where they have, they have the resources to do that, but you just, you just get very, you, you, people get like very much, um, uh, they, they erect sort of echo chambers around themselves and they, they don't just kind of survey, um, you know, the things that are happening, even in their own categories, um, games, games, I think most people are generally aware. Um, but in a lot, especially for a lot of the, like just utility apps, um, you know, pe- people kind of have very, very limited um, kind of context about what's happening in that space. Um, okay, yeah, so I I mean, wanted- I'd be
1: remiss, I'd be remiss to, to, to not discuss my latest context is that uh, because of, uh, in part because of, of uh, talking so much about subscriptions and moving maps to subscriptions, I'm actually working for uh, Revenue Cat now. Uh, we provide in-app purchase services for developers. Uh, so I'm actually not working full-time for them, so I still run my app company on the side. Um, but I did want to be clear that like me talking today is not as developer advocate at Revenue Cat. It's a much more interesting conversation if I can be David, independent developer. Um, but working at Revenue Cat definitely gives me um, some interesting perspective as well, because I've gotten to... Uh, work with my colleagues to uh, look at our data, which Revenue Cat now processes over $200 million a year in in-app subscriptions. Um, we're just growing like crazy uh, and provide a really great service and are working actually right now uh, with some really big companies who, you know, you've heard of uh, that I can't say we're working with yet, but uh, hopefully, hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll, we'll uh, be able to, talk more about all the different companies we're working with. But anyway, so that, that gives me a whole different perspective as well. So I've been working for RevenueCat for uh, seven months now and um, talking to all different kinds of subscription app developers and, um, and then continuing to work on my own subscription app. So I've, uh, yeah, I've kind of got, got all different angles covered. It's, it's uh, it, uh, definitely a unique position in the industry.
0: Right. And I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's why I thought it would be great to have this conversation, uh, because what I wanted to talk about was, um, Apple is, I wanted to talk about Apple and their, um, their walled garden, right? So <laughs> Apple, uh, is very restrictive, uh, in the way it operates the app store. I mean, all all i I've, I've, I've been kind, right. But I, 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 you, know, I, you can't argue that it they're restrictive right they just are I think where I <laughs> yeah. where I've pushed back I mean it's a closed ecosystem there's just no arguing with that where where I've pushed back on some of the criticisms of Apple is a when people call them a monopoly which i just I just think that's untrue I mean just in, in a technical sense I, I just don't think they qualify as monopoly uh, I don't think they fit the definition and then also on um, whether they are doing something with that restrictiveness that is fundamentally anti-developer. Right. So those are those are kind of the two areas that I push back on. And so I think, you know, I wanted to have the discussion kind of um, framed in that way. Like where I, I I my my general sense, and I can just kind of lay it out up front, is that no one really is entitled to what Apple has given them, which is a platform it's a marketplace that reaches close to a billion people now. I mean there's just close to a billion iPhones in circulation. So no one's entitled to that, right? Apple provides that and that's um, that's a service that they provide. And, and alongside that access, they, they have sort of like uh, ancillary services, which is, uh, you know, curation. Um, you know, they, they provide uh, content, editorial content. Uh, they provide a payments processor, which makes it really easy to, to, to use the I, IAP uh, to, to, uh, um, to, to uh, facilitate IAPs. Now, of course, that's the only one they provide, right? And that's the kind of the crux of the issue. But they provide something, and, and, and no one's really entitled to that. Um, and so that's kind of one of my positions, and then the, the part about the monopoly we can get into later. But I just don't think they qualify as a monopoly. I think you know if if you sort of like, and this this is um uh, this is semantics, right? But I think uh, I, they don't sort of qualify under the sort of definition of a monopoly um, as a monopoly. So that's that's kind of my position. Um,
1: but uh, I'm I not diva-
0: about the I mean, monopoly I mean, I
1: I agree with the terminology, and so so like where where we can kind of start discussing things is that I would say they're not a, or, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I wouldn't, I'm not going to argue the monopoly, um, you know, from a legal standpoint, but what I will argue is that I think they have an, they exercise monopoly like powers and the way they wield those powers ultimately harms consumers. So I do think that there is ultimately some anti-consumer, anti-competitive, ramifications of their policies, even if they aren't specifically monopoly because of their monopoly-like powers. And so that's where we can start getting into some of your questions, some of the, the notes you had for the talk and, and, uh, and the specifics of it.
0: Yeah, okay, I think that's actually a really good place to start. Um, and so I think then I, then I would kind of, the question I would pose to you is, okay, Apple, they, um, they have a closed ecosystem, um, they have terms that, you know, uh, might be deemed unfriendly to developers, right? They have, they, have, they have terms that dictate a lot about how a developer can interface with users via the app store, right? And so I guess my, my first question would be, how, is that different than what any other large platform does, right? So if I think about, um, you know, if I, you think about, or even, so I, an analogy that I've used is think about just a, just a, a genuine like retail store, right? Like an actual store, like uh like Walmart. I can't just go in and take some stuff into Walmart and put it on the shelf, say I'm selling this now, right? I mean, they they have a closed ecosystem, right? So like I guess my question is like what I would say is, is Apple fairly um assessed here on that kind of on that basis.
1: You know it's funny that you used Walmart as your very first example because that 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 is in my notes of a perfect example to use and so here's here's the problem with that analogy is that with Walmart you do have some towns where that's the only place you can go to shop and so fair enough, like you know whatever business practices amazon uh, apple i mean, walmart chooses to to use that's gonna affect those people in those towns specifically. But what we have with Android and iOS is it's as if San Francisco can only have Target and Dallas can only have Walmart and New York can only have Target and Seattle can only have Walmart. Um, We have a bifurcation of the market where consumers are only in a single market. And so yes, you can, so, so, if that analogy were to play out and i 'm living in in San Francisco and I only have access to target and i I would need to move to get access to uh, uh, walmart it 's a, it's a huge deal so when people are on iOS or on android it's not, it 's they, not they each individually have monopoly like powers over their individual user base because switching from one platform to the other is like having to move cities i mean it's a huge deal you've bought apps you've invested in the ecosystem you have content you have like all sorts of stuff on each of those platforms that makes switching very hard so it's not that oh well if i don't like apple's app store i can just go switch to android that's huge like that that is like a a life-altering event i mean i even saw a tweet yesterday about somebody who said um their dad switched to Android and it pissed off the whole family because they had an iMessage group text going. And like it it is a like smartphones are such a fundamental part of our modern lives with, I mean, everything from the mapping utilities to email to, I mean, we don't even use it as a phone hardly, but for text messaging and Facebook and Twitter and like, I mean, just all of these things are such a fundamental part of, of, what we do now and so much of that is tied up in in apps and content and other things so that switching platforms is is akin to having to move cities to be able to access that other market so i i, I don't think and that that's where i think a lot of people and, and even i mean if it if if they is, which seems likely antitrust um, action from governments in the future. I think you're going to see arguments along these lines is that you need to treat iOS as its own ecosystem. And you can't say, well, oh, people can just switch to Android because it's it, like, that's, that's a huge consumer burden to switch ecosystems just to get a, a slightly different experience or whatever different experiences exist on the different platforms. So um, so that's where I'd argue that that it's Apple is wielding those monopoly-like powers even if they don't directly have a monopoly over the smartphone space.
0: Uh, that's that's fair. Okay, that's fair. I think what I would say to that though is I believe that um, the the idea, so there's you, you have to kind of approach this problem from two angles, right? Cause there's, there's really like sort of three participants in this system, right? There's the consumer and there's Apple and they have a relationship and there's the consumer and the developer and they have a relationship. And so I don't think, I have never heard the argument be made from the consumer perspective that the 30% platform fee, um, is, uh, is abusive, uh, or is like exploitative, right? Cause I don't think consumers really feel that. Um, cause I don't think for the majority of, Apps like these—these these goods that are being sold via IAP—they're they're digital, right? And so there's no marginal cost of production. It doesn't cost me anything to produce an ip that I sell you. And so I think the consumers, like, if even if you reduce that 30% fee, those IAP prices wouldn't decrease because they're they're being priced at the optimal level to to generate max revenue, right? So I think I've never heard a consumer say, "Hey, that 30% fee is exploitative," or um, even even just sort of like damages my experience. I've heard it from the developer side saying, "Hey, well, look, I'm stuck in your platform." I have nowhere else. I can't go within iOS. I can't, uh, choose a different payment method. I can't avoid the 30% tax. It's, uh, I either, I either sell IAPs on, 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 uh, I either, I either accept the 30% uh, fee platform fee on iOS with any IAPs that my app generates, or I don't sell on iOS. And so therefore, um, that's abusive. My argument would be that for a developer, Switching to Android only is is totally inconsequential. I mean, and it's sorry, it's, it's not it's 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 consequential. Um, uh, but but it's 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 like a tick of a box. It's 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 almost trivial in terms of the amount of effort, right? I just take a if I'm a game developer, I tick the box in Unity. Say no more i no more iOS. I'm only going Android. So I think my point has always been, from the developer's perspective, there is no switching cost per se to go between to publish between iOS and and Android in terms of in terms of what it what it costs them in terms of the upfront. Um, effort. Now, of course, then you lose access to, you know, the, uh, you know, in, in in some verticals, the most lucrative, like 30% of the market, which would damage you. But in, in order to just switch to say, I'm no longer iOS, I'm going to, I'm going to, to Android, all, all it, it's, there's zero effort.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you, you, you just stated perfectly why it's a problem for consumers is that If a developer chooses to go android only or ios only they lose a huge swash of the market so i'm actually interestingly enough ios only so i don't publish on android at all and i do that because i like apple's platform because they provide great tools testing is easier like there's so many things as a small indie developer that apple does make easier for me um and and so man there's just there's so much to talk about so I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't, especially as a small indie, I don't actually begrudge Apple the 30% specifically. Um, you know, with the millions of dollars I've made on the App Store over the last 12 years, I've paid Apple hundreds of thousands. I, I, I forgot, I haven't done the math in a while, but it's probably close to a million dollars um, in, in their 30% that they've taken off the top. Um, And I don't begrudge them that money in that I do see a ton of value in what they've provided for me as a developer. Um, But we're talking about like the broader ecosystem and the ways it harms consumers. And that's where I think that even if a consumer is not going to say that 30% harms me or Apple's restrictedness harms me, what you're not taking into account is, is, is the, the, the businesses that, can't be built because of the restrictiveness and because of the 30%. Um, The harm to businesses that have been built, um, Spotify, you know, Netflix pulled out of the app store and app purchases. Um, And it's a terrible user experience when you go to the app and they can't even allow you to sign to create an account because creating an account would let you go to the Netflix Um, site and on the netflix site you can pay separately and apple has these arbitrary restrictions that you can't even put a link to netflix.com inside the netflix app if the netflix app does not have in-app purchases and so there's there's a, a certain amount of arbitrariness in in the way Apple is running these things and in the restrictions that I do think ultimately causes consumer harm. Do I think that all in-app purchases should be allowed to be um, you know, done via Apple Pay or via um, a third-party credit card processor? No, I actually think Apple is entitled to charge developers a certain fee. But I think that Apple has overstep their bounds time and time again. For example, like Kindle, the eBooks, like Apple has nothing to do with the production of that content with the the authors, the writers, like this is just digital content that happens to be on an iPhone. And to force customers to jump through all the hoops you have to do to get a, to like, you just wanna go to the Kindle app and get a new book but you can't, you gotta jump out, they gotta go out to the website and there's just this arbitrariness that ultimately harms consumers with businesses like Kindle and Spotify where and Netflix where they're now having to push people outside of the app store because their margins are thin enough. Like, and you were t- talking earlier about margins. Yeah, you know, um, King, And these Supercell and these big gaming companies, those marginal costs look really different than Spotify, than Netflix, than, you know, these content apps. Um, So, you know, there's so many different categories and so many different types of content and uh, services on the app store that it's hard to kind of bucket them all together. And so where I'll push back is not on... Apple should not charge thirty percent at all, or you know Apple should allow all developers to charge via Apple pay or whatever third party processor, but I think there's categories of apps where that makes sense, and I think Apple has overstepped its bounds such that they're inviting governmental regulation uh, because of this restrictiveness and and so now so so far, we've just talked about the apps that exist that I think are harmed, and that ultimately harms consumers, but then there's a whole class of apps that just don't exist because of this restrictiveness. So AppReview specifically, I mean, it's hard to fully understand AppReview if you're not a developer. And then I don't even think you fully understand it unless you're an app developer whose like livelihood is on the line. So back in 2013, I believe, the whole summer, me and my business partner in, in Launch Center Pro we're talking about all these amazing features we could build with some of the new stuff that Apple um, introduced in iOS. I think it was 10 at that point. I don't remember the details, but the whole summer we were talking about, Oh, wouldn't this feature be cool? And then I would say, yeah, but Apple's probably going to reject it. And then he would say, Oh, this is going to be amazing. And then we're like, Oh yeah, but Apple would probably reject it. And there's like a, there's a, a psychology there to, what you even think of building, what you even experiment with, what you even try because of how restrictive they are. And it's not just that they're restrictive, it's that you have to actually build it and take a massive risk and then pray and hope that they actually approve it. And so I absolutely think that that's doing harm both to consumers and to developers. Consumers, because you don't, there's just apps and features that are just never tried There's whole businesses that aren't even attempted because people are scared of Apple rejecting the app. And then you have features and enhancement to apps and other things that are never tried because developers are scared of the restrictions. And then you have businesses whose margins are so thin that Apple's 30% cut even if they're not deserving in that specific instance which I would argue in the case of like ebooks and Netflix, 30% is very heavy handed. But so you have whole businesses that can't ever even launch an app because of the way Apple restricts you to using in app purchases inside the app. So you can't grow and build on this whole this platform because of that. And then then we get back to some of our like monopoly or not monopoly discussions in that even though iOS is only fifty-ish market, fifty-ish percent market share in the U.S., it heavily dominates the more spendy consumers in the U.S. And so, if you're going to build a business, you want access to to the best con- customers, and that's part of why I'm iOS only. And a lot of people launch on iOS before they launch on Android, is that is that Apple has that has a monopoly on a lot of those better consumers in the US. And so if you want access to them, you have to go through Apple's app store. And if you go through the app store, you have to play by all these rules, including the 30%, including app review, including all the other restrictions that they place. And so ultimately, yeah, I absolutely think it does consumer harm, even if you can't point to, I mean, I think I've already pointed to a few specific examples, Uh, both in user experience and businesses who've had to change their practices and other stuff. But then there's a whole other side of like just things that aren't being built and features that aren't being released that that we'll just never even be able to quantify.
0: Yeah. I think the point um, about, um, about margins is a good one. Like, so I think that that's, that's a good place to dig in. Right. Because I think if you think about, so Apple already does, um, exempt a pretty big class of apps from the thirty percent tax, right? So like Uber, right? You don't well, pay. physical
1: goods, yeah, but right. that's physical, yeah.
0: physical. Physical goods, right? So, but they so, they so basically their their position has been, hey, if this actually costs money to fulfill, we won't take a cut, right? Uber rides, hey, we're not we're not going to intervene there. You could just charge. You can you can collect people's credit card info. Uh, Grubhub, you know, whatever. Um, we're not we're not going to intervene. We won't take a thirty percent cut. So I think my sense is because uh, part of the impetus for me wanting to have this this, uh, conversation was the article I wrote um, two weeks ago about uh, Amazon um, basically getting uh, the ability to sidestep um, iTunes payments uh, with Amazon Prime and iOS, right? So now people can buy if they they, um, are a new user and they're just signing up for Prime on iOS, they download the Prime app on their iPhone. They, they're setting up a new account. They can input their credit card info directly, and they can start. Um, they can start buying uh, uh, videos, and they'll they'll be paying Amazon directly, and, and Apple won't be taking a cut. My sense is that what Apple is doing is they're sort of like broadening the definition of that exempted class, maybe to to going to going from what it is currently, which is hey, if if you're fulfilling a physical product or if there's a cost incurred in the fulfillment. Of this product that we're facilitating this transaction, that we're facilitating, we won't take a cut. I think they might extend that to say, "Hey, if you're if the if the product that is being transacted on had a cost, even though there's no marginal cost to, to this transaction, even though it doesn't cost you anything to fulfill this transact to, to fulfill this transaction, but if the product itself had a cost associated with it." Then I think we'll, we will um, exempt you from the thirty percent tax. So that would basically cover video, right? That would cover video and streaming video and streaming music. Ebooks, hey, yeah. yeah, ebooks. Because it doesn't it doesn't cost you anything to fulfill this one product. There's no mar- marginal cost of production, but you had to pay to get access to that product. Like you had to pay to get this content created, or you had to buy it, um, or or you had to pay for the licenses for this uh, the song uh, from from the record label. And so therefore, we'll exempt you. That. My sense is they're moving in that direction because. Here's why I think apple's not a monopoly and 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 you know i I don't want to you know this this is a this is a rat hole that we could get stuck <laughs> in I, and i and I won't do that but if if you the the kind of the, the 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 sort of most distinctive aspect of a monopoly is the ability to set prices is the ability to be a price maker right so you think about um you know true true monopolies uh you know, that has existed in the past is that they basically had exclusive access to some commodity and they just said, okay, you want to, you want to buy it? This is the price. Uh, and, and a lot of times those, those commodities were sort of like essential goods, right? So people couldn't uh, avoid it. Um, a good example here is, is the, the cable company in Austin. There's just one, right? So if you want to get cable, you just gotta, you gotta buy from them. And, and they're, but, but their that price. exactly
1: goes to my earlier point is that like the app store, if you're on iOS, so you said if you're in Austin and there was one cable company and that was your only choice, that's a monopoly. Well, so and 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 you're talking about essential goods, like the iPhone and, and Android are like essential goods in our lives. And once you pick a platform and start investing in that platform, it's like you live in Austin and there's only one place to get your cable. When you're when you live in the iOS ecosystem, there's only one place to get apps, and and that follows all of Apple's rules.
0: Right. But, but exactly. But Apple's not a price maker. Right. Apple doesn't like the freemium uh, model yet everything trended towards freemium. Right. I think Apple, uh, Apple is a price taker. Apple in, 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 I think one example of that is, um, when Apple went, why did Apple decrease the second year subscription take right? Um, I think they were afraid of losing developers. If, if, if there's, there's an, if they didn't do that. Right. And I think they, they want, and first of all, they wanted to, they wanted to sort of incentivize people to do subscriptions because they don't like the freemium model. They don't like IEP purchases. Now when Apple reduced it 30 to 15%, what did Google do? They did the exact same thing. They're in lockstep. Like they the, the, the competition I think between those platforms is so fierce that they know that none, none of that, neither of them has price-making power. So if, if they and if they didn't uh, make those changes, then you know then there would be like kind of a, an exodus to the other okay, platform. Okay, so that,
1: so the I totally agree. They don't have price making powers; they're price takers, not price makers. So that's from a consumer standpoint. So consumer harm are consumers harmed because of Apple's policies inflating price? No, I totally agree with you on that. I don't think that that App Store prices are inflated. I think developers do have a ton of control. Although, I mean, this is a whole nother rat rabbit hole but um the the shape of the app store and the way apple runs the market does incentivize certain things and disincentivize other things like back in the early days of the app store because it was completely sorted on volume a lower price product would shoot up the charts and the charts gave you exposure and that exposure was really valuable and so you were incentivized to have a lower price so there are certain incentives that are created by the shape and the structures of the app store um I totally lost my train of thought, because <laughs> um, I man that that's a rabbit hole I love to go down. <laughs> right, but but not for not for today. So um, so Apple's a price taker, not a price maker. I don't think that consumers are being harmed by inflated prices, but I think developers are being harmed by having to jump through those hoops and 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 again I don't and I'm not going to argue that every single hoop is bad. Like, I actually like the walled garden. I think it's, it's a boon for consumers. I think the, the security that it presents to consumers and the ease of downloading, I mean, back in the day when you're downloading an app from some shady website, like Apple has created a lot of value and consumer confidence in the app store. And I, I do absolutely think they deserve to get paid for that. But what, I'm, what, what I would argue is that while Apple's not a price maker, they do consumer harm by, Controlling the developers as strongly as they do, so um, so and and that's where like uh, existing um, case law on monopolies is such a is such a hard thing to apply to this modern form of business that has never existed before. You know, it's not like physical goods where every physical good has a cost. Like you said, there are. It, 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 there's just totally different dynamics at play when you have um, um, zero incremental cost goods than if you had goods that actually cost. And so, I, I, and, and to like jump back to your earlier points, um, I think you're right. And I hope that Apple does move further and further in this direction of recognizing that that not all goods are zero incremental cost. And if they can better delineate which goods those are, I think that would be great for the ecosystem because it would allow companies like Spotify and the next Spotify who can't even launch on iOS because of these rules, it would empower them to actually build a business on the platform, which they can't, they can't even build a business now. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up just to, to kind of close out some of your other points is that, um, I also wonder. So there's there there was a few details on the Amazon thing that that haven't gotten as much attention. And I think you did mention it in your article, but part of the agreement between Apple and Amazon was that Amazon now lets you subscribe to Prime in the app through in-app purchase, and you know we we might not not ever know unless there's like a, a court case that documents get revealed and stuff, but you know, so Apple may have given them a really sweet deal on that. Maybe they're only charging 5%, maybe it's 10% or whatever. Like surely they have an individual agreement and Apple is not getting the full 30% on Amazon Prime memberships that are purchased in the app store, but surely they're getting something. And what I think is really interesting about that specific deal and what it points to in the future is that if you look at how they divvied things up, it wasn't just Um, is this an incremental cost or is it have some fixed costs associated with it? It was who earned the business. And so when somebody already has a prime account, they already have an established relationship with Amazon. They already have their credit card associated with Amazon. Amazon has clearly earned that business. And all Apple is doing is providing the platform for Amazon to deliver goods and services that have already been Earn through a direct relationship with the customer. When somebody downloads an Amazon app on the iPhone and the ease of purchasing on the iPhone versus going to the website and entering your credit card and everything else, Apple does, and th- this is where I think Apple does earn a lot of the 30%. Like when you have a single place to enter and update your credit card and you, have, you can buy things just by looking at your phone and double tapping on the, power button, Apple creates a ton of value in the in the ease of purchase mechanism for the app store. And that's why I think even if I, I don't think Apple should, I don't think Apple, I don't think a government should or could mandate Apple to do this. But even if they completely opened it up to where you can just charge for anything in any way you feel like, I think most people would still use in-app purchase because entering your credit card is such a huge, um, a uh, huge step in the funnel that would lose so many customers that that otherwise would just you know double tap and use their face to purchase. So Apple's created a ton of value in making that super easy for consumers. And so what's interesting about the Amazon and Apple deal is that in some ways it delineates on what things Apple has helped make easier in making in-app purchase easier and what business Amazon already earned by establishing those previous relationships with customers, so I don't think that's the crux of the deal. I think you're you're probably more spot on that they're they're kind of bending more on the, um, you know, incremental cost of goods. But I think that's an interesting side to the story as well. It's just kind of like, what, where is Apple rent-seeking and where are they really delivering value? And, and part of the problem is with the way things are now, we don't know because you can't compete, right? So like how many developers really would abandon in-app purchases if Apple opened it up? We don't know because they didn't open it up. And I think what, what like, again, I would still argue tons of people would use in-app purchase because Apple has created value by making that so easy. And so I hope in the future, it's a combination of both as that Apple loosens up in the areas that they're not the ones creating the value. And then, and sure, you know, for me as a a subscription app developer, building productivity apps, you know, they create a tremendous amount of value in making it really easy for people to purchase, in maintaining those credit cards, in consistent billing and all those things. And so I don't begrudge them the, the fees to enable all of that. Yeah,
0: I think um, the interesting thing there, I mean, if you think about Amazon and maybe why they did this deal, and Jeff Gruber covered this in his blog, so this is, I'm just kind of stealing his idea here. As, I think this, this isn't my original thought, but, um, you know, a- Amazon, where don't they have prime coverage, right? I mean, it's got to be some fairly small sliver of the sort of total potential market for them left especially on
1: ios being the more uh, affluent consumers generally
0: right exactly so for them you know it's this is like okay well if this helps us bring in you know some number of incremental users fine we'll give them we'll give them the cut now i do believe that they got a a sweetheart deal um and this this is this was kind of flagged as as a specific program that existed uh that that predated the amazon deal with a couple other video producers and it was uh, it, it is, um, uh, the, the, it's, it, the context is just video content, right? So it wasn't like a broader program covering lots of other types of content. But I think if you think about the other companies that that have similar profiles to Amazon, which is, okay, we have a, we have a huge user base, we have like sort of deep uh, connection, direct connections to our, our customers, and we operate cross-platform. It's like, well, okay, Apple's just one part of the surface area of our, our company, and or like of our of our the operating surface area of our company, and so like we could have sourced these users from anywhere. I mean, we're giving it's Apple's. It's great that they're giving our users an opportunity to interface with our product in one more form factor. But like our users are our users already. Like you, YouTube is a perfect example. Netflix. Um, you know Spotify and what those companies all have in common is that they are already sidestepping uh, apps, uh, iTunes payment process, right? Yeah. And YouTube even went so far a few months ago. They can- they canceled everybody's account who was <laughs> ha- who had that. a subscription via iTunes. And said no, you cannot. You can not only do not only are we strongly encouraging you to to pay outside of iTunes, but we're forcing you to do that. So my sense is that like Apple's hand might get just forced here at some point. Yep. Because and I made the point in the article. These other companies, um, yeah, Apple is, Apple used, maybe at one point, Apple was the way that they interfaced with these companies' products or the, the majority way. But now, like, there's just that, that matrix that I presented of content producers and platform operators. Not only does Apple have to play nice because they now have their own sort of content that they want to be consumed elsewhere outside of just the um, iOS ecosystem, but also, like, these other companies could just say, look, I mean, I, this, I can get this person on desktop, I can get them on smart TV. Like, I don't necessarily, like, you know, yeah, it's, it, I have to be on mobile, but I'll make, I, I, I'm okay to make the user experience just kind of crappy on mobile for the purpose of getting them to not subscribe there. Um, because I can, I know I can reach them in all these other places and I can acquire them in all these other places, right? So it just, it just does, it does kind of categorize the um, developer base on app and on mobile in general, but on app on iOS. Um, into people who are dependent on iOS for discovery, right? People who are just—I'm well, I'm a mobile-only company, and I have to—I have—I rely 100% on Apple um, for access to these users. And then these like sort of cross-platform companies who are like, yeah, okay, mobile is a super important part of our business. It's probably the majority, but we can acquire users anywhere, and we'll find a way to get them to pay. Like, we'll find a way, even if the even if these experience on on mobile, it's gonna be be suboptimal, we'll find a way to get them to pay. So you kind of have to, um, um, you know, give us a little uh, leeway here. My sense is that that's what, that's probably what's gonna happen. Do you you think that this eventually goes to, maybe not zero, but like, there's just like continuous decrease in Apple's take rate?
1: I think for content, yes. I think they've signaled pretty strongly that it's not gonna be that way for other apps and services. Um to 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 piggyback on that conversation, though, um, I mean YouTube's flex in that situation just blew my mind. like I mean that that is ultimate market power flex. like you have consumers, subscribe to your service like the the holy grail of recurring revenue and you cancel millions of subscriptions (laughs) just to flex that market power against one of your top rivals like that blew my mind when that happened um and and more power to them to like you know i think it's important for companies like that to stand up to apple here's the here's a problem and here's where i think that we do ultimately see a massive amount of consumer harm that 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 goes underreported because there's no way to quantify it. It's what companies aren't being built because of this. So YouTube, YouTube, Netflix, um, you know, all these ones, Spotify, the ones we're talking about have the market power to, to run these lower margin businesses on these platforms um, without taking platform payments because they have that market power. So what businesses are not being created? And, and you could say, oh, well, it's a privilege to work on these platforms. But, and that's where I think you can get back to like the utility argument. You know, smartphones are now the prominent um, computing platform of our time. Like, you know, billions of smartphones in active use and you know far dwarfing computers i mean pretty much every uh, human being every adult human on the planet and now a lot of teenagers and kids do have a smartphone so they're they are the dominant computing platform of our time and the only way to build a business on those platforms is to go through these two gatekeepers and we haven't talked a lot about Google and I don't work on Android so I don't have a ton of insight there, but they have a ton of restrictions too, and they're they're actually Similar to Apple from what I hear cracking down more and more on pushing apps towards in app purchases for certain types of apps and other things. Um, While, well, but they still do have the outlet like um, Epic did, you can sideload apps. And so there is at least some like competing forces in the ability to sideload apps and take payment, the whatever way you want. Um, But anyway, so the point I was trying to get at was that like, there, there are companies not being created that, that could thrive building on the prominent, predominant computing platform of our time that can't be created due to a combination of margins and restrictiveness on the, on the platforms. And that's, that's consumer harm that we'll never be able to know or quantify. And, you know, we'll see in a decade if if governmental regulations change things and we see a whole new forms of businesses coming out, like you would have never thought like Uber would not have existed if it weren't for, the, the the mobile platforms, like it, it wasn't a thing that you like called this new service like you would a taxi. It was a thing because it was an app on your phone. Now Uber got around the, the 30% because of the rules. And again, the arbitrary rules that Apple sets on what is and what isn't allowed to be a direct credit card payment. And so like what businesses are just not able to even ever be dreamt of because of the margins and restrictiveness. And, and I think that's doing a ton of consumer harm, but we just can't ever know.
0: Mm. Um, okay. So last question, which I think is, is something that, um, you know, almost never comes up in, in these, in these Twitter feuds that I, uh, <laughs> that, I that I find myself um, uh, engaging in which is okay so apple get, you you get something you get something in exchange for being in, in, on you know you get something as an a published app store app you get discovery you get you know the editorial um you get the the payments uh processing um you get a lot of anti fraud stuff and what i would say about the epic stuff is like when when they did side, they did launch uh, fortnite with the standalone launcher or they did, they did release Fortnite on Google play with the stand. uh, Sorry. When Epic released (laughs) Fortnite on Android with the standalone launcher, there was a ton of fraud because people were, you know, there's a ton of people that just said, Oh, you know, like they started, you know, building websites, like here's a Fortnite download. And it was, uh, you know, spyware and stuff. So so that's something that you get in exchange for your 30%, you get that. But I guess my, what, what I ask people sometimes in, in, uh, you know, again i think a lot of people don't think about it this way what could apple give you that would or what could apple give developers that would make them say you know what that 30% that's a that's a discount i mean that's that's cheap i would gladly give 30% in exchange for this like and i cause I, I feel i feel like framing the question from that way uh is is a is a good way to kind of ultimately uh converge around some number because i think 30 percent is a lot and I, my sense is that most developers will say well nothing nothing's worth thirty percent but okay then what 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 are Apple's existing services developers worth is it ten percent is it fifteen percent and uh, what more could they possibly offer
1: yeah so man I, I would well first of all I, I actually and I, I've said this multiple times I Personally, don't think thirty percent is that bad of a deal. Like as a as a and so, when I founded my company in two thousand eight, um, I actually borrowed ten thousand dollars from my parents. And when I and I actually presented like a really detailed like six page business plan and went through all the the discussions with my dad and then my uncle and aunt actually uh, pitched in ten thousand as well. Um, which, by the way, just you know I'm incredibly fortunate to have family who believed in me and, and did that. and I actually paid them both back completely with interest um, and then bought them both out eventually. Um, so I'm really proud of that as well. But anyway, so so when I was going through that business plan with my dad, I, I remember so specifically he he's, he comes from a commercial real estate background and and retail and everything else and he it, it clicked with him instantly. Wait a minute. Apple's going to handle processing, taxes, credit cards. All They're going to host your application. They're going to, you know, put it live on the storefront and they're only going to take 30%. I mean, this was back in 2008. So, you know, things have changed and developers forget how hard those things were. But even yeah. my dad who, you know, has never, you know, been in tech or whatever, it blew his mind and 30% seemed like an incredible deal. And, and honestly, to this day, Um, I think that 30% is justified for most apps. And that's where I think we probably agree on a lot of things. And I would love to see Apple reduce it. I mean, 20% would, you know, be a huge boon to a lot of developers, especially smaller ones like me. Um, But I actually, I don't think people even fully realize how much Apple really does. And other companies have made aspects of this easier and easier over time. So, yes, Stripe does credit card processing and they only charge 5% but like they're not hosting your app. They're not providing discovery. They're not reviewing your app. So it's like when, when, when people are like, and I, Stripe probably isn't even five, do you know what Stripe is? Is it 5%, 3%, something like that? I don't know. Yeah, it's somewhere in that range. And I hear people saying, oh, I could just use Stripe. Well, Stripe isn't like paying taxes to different governments. I mean, they handle some of this, but like, like it is so easy as a developer, to just upload my app and make money, and like from in two thousand and eight, when all of this started, and again, things have changed, but in two thousand and eight, you know if I wanted to start a software company i 'd have like there were some tools back then, but it's like you would have to glue things together, and like you 'd have to report taxes yourself, and like there 's just so much involved and self hosting and get keys to prevent fraud. And like, and then you got to build trust so that users will download your app and not worry about spam and and, um, malware and stuff. So, and so Apple provides a ton of value, and I, I will not argue that they don't. And I, a lot of people don't realize how much Apple spends. So Apple has massive teams. Like, I, I don't, I don't know exactly anymore. But you know, at one point, uh, I read online from I guess maybe the the previous App Store review had that there was something like three thousand people on his team, and this was like four years ago. So I imagine the App Review team alone is four or five thousand people now. You have, and then a a lot of, especially the indie developers who are like, oh yeah, Apple doesn't deserve my 30%. They don't actually have direct contacts inside Apple. Um, And for good reason. I mean, like, you know, Apple has like millions of apps and millions of developers. They can't handhold every single developer. Like that's not economically feasible for them, but they have a ton of people. They have huge teams that interface with developers. And as a small indie developer, Um, You don't usually see that. I've been really fortunate to have good contacts at Apple's over the years. I had this one contact, funny story, back in like 2010, we would have breakfast every year at WWDC and he told me to my face one time, he's like, you know, David, I don't normally work with developers of your size. But you give such good feedback. I really enjoy having these kind of conversations. So even back in like the early days of the App Store, Apple had huge teams of people who were actively talking to developers. And so these days, I mean, the the infrastructure alone is, is just a massive thing. I mean, Apple's App Store operates as a retail store at a scale that's you know hardly seen. Um, the billions of apps and billions and billions of dollars of transactions, um, so all that infrastructure support that it takes to keep that up, all the credit card processing, all the taxes, all the legal, um, all the statements and reports I get, and they have massive teams for editorial all over the world. So they're not just editorializing here in the U S with a team, you know, 10 people in Cupertino looking at a few apps and putting them up on the app store. A lot of people think that those lists are like automatically generated. No, there's, there's teams and teams of people like in the U S there's teams of people focused on the business category for ed, ed for uh, editorial reasons. There's people focused on, on, there's actually a huge team focused on games because it's such a big category. And then, each of those categories and different teams is replicated across the world because in China, it is a totally different consumer. And so they have editorial teams in, in, I don't know if all, but most countries. So these are huge teams across the globe for editorial. You have huge teams across the globe for developer relations. You have, you know, all the, and then that's not even to mention all of the teams building the APIs that we use. And, and again, the infrastructure and WWC and like Apple does a lot. Now, they make a ton of money. I would love to see the profit and loss statement on the App Store. I don't, I don't know if Apple internally has like a, a, you know, internal rate of return on App Store, you know, what they're spending compared to um, to what they're making. I imagine it's incredible margins, but there's, they spend a ton of money and they do a lot of work. So I think they do enough to earn it. And again, like just from a developer standpoint, I I don't think I would ever... Force customers to type in a credit card on their phone compared to the ease of use of in-app purchases. I don't. I don't think that funnel would work for my products. Um, some people have the market power, like YouTube. Um, so even just providing those in-app purchase ease of use is a huge value that Apple adds. So you have no argument for me that Apple's earning money uh, and and justifiable thirty percent, um, but. Of course, as a developer, I'd love to see that lower.
0: So I wrote an article a few months ago about um, the while you know while I've kind of defended Apple's right to charge the thirty percent, while I defended their right to have uh, you know uh, to to exert like sort of total control over the marketplace, I do think that thirty percent is you know it's it stays or numbered right. I think that 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 rate is going to have to come down. I think. Because you, you have you again you have that sort of like um, matrix surface area um, uh, kind of s- circumstance that I was talking about before um, where you know they these these companies don't need Apple for acquisition they don't need Apple for discovery they just need it as like one point of interface um, for the products to connect to connect with their users. So, so I, I think I think the 30% is not long for this world. Now, the point I made in this article a couple months ago was that like, well, Apple, I think it does seem like they are actually creating new features to sort of justify the 30%. Yeah. So they they introduced a whole new set of subscription features, right? So that you could have like special offers and discounts and that kind of thing. And like, I think Apple, they probably can't maintain 30% forever, but they could probably prolong the 30% uh, take by just like continuously rolling out these new features that just make app, app developers' lives easier. My, so my, here's my one thing I've been kind of noodling over and I, I'm thinking about, uh, I might write an article about it, is that if you wanted to just get every single big advertiser to love you and um, and, and completely sort of ignore the 30% and be happy to pay it, uh, integrate, attribute, integrate ad attribution into itunes make it so that i don't need an attribution provider anymore uh and they could do that with there'd be one sprint i think that's the easiest thing in the world to do all you're doing is taking utm tags uh in in the in the url uh and that's it and they could i mean that that would just make because i mean that's a that's a for a small develop for a small advertiser like a, like a, i don't know a, let's say a medium-sized advertiser that's 100k a year uh up to like a million a year uh for attribution if you did that, you every app developer would would for six months forget about thirty. They wouldn't care. They would they would be um, so pleased and so gratified. That seems like a really easy thing to do for Apple to just ingratiate itself with um, with uh, advertisers and slash developers.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think they are going to continue doing those kind of things. And you know, the thirty percent not being long for this world. Um, I I still don't know what I think because in a lot of ways I don't I don't think Apple is incentivized to reduce it but where I where I think Apple is really pushing the boundaries right now is is more with the overall restrictiveness and the specific apps that they don't allow to go around the app store and so I I think ultimately what's going to happen is that if that thirty percent goes down, my guess is that it will be due to governmental regulation, and the governmental regulation will have been invited by Apple overstepping its bounds in these other areas that we 've been talking about because yeah. Apple does have the mar- Apple does have the market and pricing power over developers so we were talking about that earlier they don 't have price making um, powers for consumers developers do ultimately set prices, but they have price making power over developers and that doesn't that doesn't change and so they have no direct incentive we're a captive audience we are that person living in austin with a single cable provider because you have to access ios people uh, users if you want to build a Uh, a modern digital business. I mean, very few businesses these days, a consumer facing business is going to survive or thrive as a web only business as a, as a Safari app, as a, or as a just a a desktop web app, like consumer facing Mm. products are mobile. So Apple absolutely has price making power over us as developers and they flex that. And I, and that's where yeah, I don't I don't see Apple willingly. I think that the the subscription thing was a carrot and so it was willing in the sense of we 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 want to incentivize this new business model that aligns with our business objectives long term of this services revenue narrative and we think that um incentivizing retention, you know, multi-year retention is a good thing. So so they 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 did incentivize with that carrot, but I don't, I don't see how, I don't see how they, with, with that price making power, I don't see how they back down from the 30% anytime soon, logically, because they can charge it. Developers are paying it. So the the one area that I, uh, that I wish Apple would see, and, and this was a, a note I had to discuss in another section that we kind of glossed over, but if, if Apple were to reduce that, 30%, let's say to 10, I mean to 20. And then you know, after a year it's 10 or whatever that is. It's an interesting discussion of where does that 10% go? Are developers just raking that in as profit? Or are they reinvesting that in user acquisition, in product development, and other things? And my my sense is that by reducing the the, the fee. They're, they're in, they are incentivizing reinvestment in the product as much as they are um, profit-taking. So, but I don't know. And, and I don't know if, if that's something, if, if they would, if they see it that way, and if they see that as a strong enough um, justification for reducing the price. Because uh, I mean, you know, and then and then this all gets back to like the whole services narrative and Wall Street and everything else. And that's a whole nother rabbit hole that like, bugs the heck out of me that like, you know, Apple is more and more managed on hitting their services revenue numbers over like what's a great experience. And that's part of why I think it's taken them so long to improve the experience around subscriptions. They're not incentivized to, they're making a ton of money and driving the stock based on the subscription revenue that's coming in, whether or not it's harming consumers. And I think a lot of those early subscription scams were absolutely harming consumers. And there's still a lot going on in the app store that's harming consumers that they're not incentivized to change because of that. Um, so anyways, that's a whole different tangent, but, um, but yeah, it's interesting to think like what dynamics of the market would change if they dropped to 20%. I think it would enable some businesses who are more, um, margin constrained to operate on the mobile platforms. Um, and then I, I think that you would see more product investment and you'd see some profit taking. So, um, so it's like, you know, how much of that mix is enough justification for Apple to do it. And, and I don't see it happening anytime soon if it's not forced by government.
0: Well, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think if, if you reduce the take from 30 to 20, you know, I just get I, I just got one-seventh more revenue. So you're talking about a 14% bump in my LTV. I think everyone that is all the advertisers would just basically increase their bids by 14%. And they'd say, hey, we just got 14% more to play with in our bids. So let's let's spend 14% more on ads. Um, and then, you know, the advertising companies would love it. And I, you'd probably just, you'd probably just, uh, you'd probably just that money would probably just stay in the ecosystem anyway. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe it'd be better for everybody. Apple
1: would, it would just be a, it'd be a transfer of wealth from Apple to Google and Facebook, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Hey David, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people, um, find you on Twitter, where can they, where can they, how can they reach you? How can they get in touch with you?
1: Um, so yeah, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, Dr. Barnard uh, on Twitter. Um, and then, so I have my apps, Launch Center Pro and WeatherUp are the two apps I'm, I'm focused on right now. Um, and you can find those at contrast.co. Um, and then RevenueCat. So I'm developer advocate at RevenueCat. If you have a subscription app uh, and want to chat about, this kind of stuff, I actually do office hours every week. Um, so you can get in touch with me on, on Twitter uh, and we can chat subscription apps and um, yeah.